Exodus chapter 10, if you've got a Bible. Exodus chapter 10. We are up to the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. So we're going to study from uh, chapter 10, verse 1 to verse 20, if we make it that far. This one is also a pretty extensive narrative. Uh, the plague of hail and the plague of locusts are uh, two of the, the longest plague accounts, up until, of course, the tenth and final plague, which is climactic. But nonetheless, uh, our focus of tonight is Exodus chapter 10, first 20 verses. And we're just going to have a real simple thought flow. We're going to see a rather extensive prelude to the plague. In fact, 11 verses are given to the, the prelude where we're going to have this uh, interesting conversation exchange between Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's servants. And it's kind of a, a build-up to the plague itself. The actual plague, or the procession of the plague, if you will, is verses 12 to 15. It's actually uh, pretty short. We'll see that in, in many, in fact, most of the plague accounts. The, the prelude or the, that which leads up to the actual record of the plague is longer than the account of the plague itself. It's kind of like he's, God's telling you what's going to happen, and then he just tells you, and it happened. Right? Um, but nonetheless... We'll then see this, the, the postlude, if you will, where we'll see this, again, exchange between uh, Pharaoh, Moses, Aaron. It's, it's a pretty—we've seen that repetitive pattern multiple times, so no shocker there, other than we see the length. This is a, a longer account. So, so let's begin. Let's read verses 1 to 11, and we'll start with that, and, and we'll notice this divine preface, if you will, where God starts with a, a theological preface as to why he's about to unleash the eighth plague. We'll then see this dramatic irony in verse 7. The servants of Pharaoh blame Moses and Aaron for all the problems that they're experiencing. And then, of course, we'll see their deceitful ploy, where they're going to try to once again uh, wheel and deal with Moses and Aaron, but to no avail. Right. So we'll see this as, again, one of the longer preludes to the actual plague itself. But uh, let's, let's read it and watch it unfold. Okay, so verse 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him, and that you may tell in the ears of your son and your son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know how that I am the Lord. And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus says the Lord uh, God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into your coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is, which is escaped, which remains unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which grows for you out of the field. And they shall fill your houses, and the houses of your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that you were, or they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself, that is Moses, turned his back, uh, and he went out from Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh's servants, verse 7, said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. He says, Do you not uh, know? That yet is that Egypt is destroyed, or excuse me, knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh. So they go and they bring them back. And he said unto them, Go and serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young, with our old, with our sons, with our daughters, with our flocks, with our herds will we go. For we must hold a feast or a festival unto the Lord. 
And he said to them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now, you that are men, and serve the Lord, for you, uh, for that you did desire. And they were driven out from the presence of Pharaoh. All right, pause there. Now, <clears throat> again, this, this prelude is going to be uh, one of the longer ones that we've seen thus far, which is, again, all trying to build up to this uh, climactic 10th plague, which we'll look at here in a couple of weeks. But the, God is, again, he's, the, the intensity is mounting. But notice the first six verses is what you might call a divine preface, where God is going to uh, give the theological reasoning behind the plague itself. And so again, this plague account, this eighth plague, is the second longest plague account thus far, just behind the length of the seventh. The seventh plague account was longer, but this is second, and then of course we'll see the tenth plague uh, will be the longest. But just like the, uh, the seventh plague began with that theological preface back in chapter 9, verses 14 to 16, we're going to see this yet again. And the purpose of this preface is to highlight several things, three big things. He's going to talk about the purpose of this plague for Israel. That's verses 1 to 2. In other words, God wants this plague to accomplish a specific purpose for Israel, but also for Egypt. That's verse 3. And then, of course, he'll extrapolate uh, or elaborate on the nature of the plague itself. He'll declare that it's locusts and, you know, that they'll cover the earth, uh, eat up all the vegetation that was left behind from the hail, etc. So look again at verse 1 and 2, where the Lord speaks first to Moses, and he gives him the command, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him. Right? We've talked about that many times, but God is orchestrating these events. He's hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that uh, God might grandstand this, that he might bring it to the climactic tenth and final plague. Why? Verse 2, that you may tell in the ears of your son and your son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. In other words, the purpose of the plague when it relates to Israel is that God wants to teach a lesson to Israel. He wants them to be able to educate, if you will, succeeding generations in what God did in Egypt and thereby bring Israel to faith in the Lord, right? In other words, God is building his resume, as I like to say. He's, he's wanting these stories to be the campfire stories that are passed down through the generations in the nation of Israel. Now, of course, this purpose uh, will be accomplished. This was one of the functions, and we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks uh, when we get there, but this was one of the purposes of Passover, Right. In fact, we'll just pop over to chapter 12 real quick, verse uh, 26 and 27 of the chapter. Moses says this. He says, It'll come to pass that when your children say unto you, What mean you by this service? In other words, he just finished talking about how they're to keep the Passover, right? Slay the lamb, uh, dash the blood against the doorpost and the lintel. He says, One of these days, your children is going to ask, What do you mean by this service? Verse 27. Then you will say, It is a sacrifice. Or it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, and he smote when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. In other words, he says, I want you to participate in these various uh, traditions and ceremonies that are going to be pass- that are going to be associated with Passover. And he says, why? So that your children start asking questions, so that you can answer them and teach them about what God did. He'll say something similar later in, in Exodus chapter thirteen. And then throughout the book of Deuteronomy, uh, this is going to be a big thing. 
This idea of recalling what God has done and giving thanks for God's wonderful deeds is one of the most basic themes in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, 7, uh, 26, 29. In fact, chapter 26 is the, uh, the festival where it's the, it's the first fruits dedication, the first fruits offering. So when your fields produce fruit, the very first fruits of those you would collect and you would take to the Lord and you would offer thanks to that. But as you're offering thanks to God for that first uh, those first fruits, you are to rehearse what God has done throughout history, and particularly the Exodus event. And so we see this idea of the rehearsal of the Exodus event. This is embedded in Hebrew culture. In fact, more evidence for this and their recital of these miraculous deliverances from Egypt uh, is seen throughout the Psalter. If you were with us uh, years back in our Psalter series, this is a huge theme. Psalm 77, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, 106. I uh, could also put in there Psalm 107, Psalm 114, Psalm 135, Psalm 136 are just examples of how often the Psalter also wallows in this reality that God is the God of the Exodus. This is, in fact, one of his great, uh, you know, his grand resume. God is, is often flaunting this, that he's the God of that brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? He says, I am the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says that over and over and over again. And we'll see it uh, a little bit more in the morning service this coming Sunday. But there's really one thing that rivals that. In other words, the Exodus is the big thing that makes up the majority of, of uh, biblical history. It's the thing that God is always drawing attention to, that he did and he accomplished. But then by the time we get the New Testament, he does a greater work, and that's the resurrection of Christ. Uh, and so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more on Sunday. But, but nonetheless, God is building his resume. And so he wants Israel to know this and pass it down from generation to generation. But also notice verse 2. He says, he uses a very graphic, picturesque word in verse 2 when he says, I want your sons and your sons' sons to know the things that I have wrought in Egypt. You see that? The things I've wrought in Egypt. Depending on your translation, uh, it can be translated a number of different ways, but it's a very graphic word, in fact, that can be translated something along the lines of wrought or humiliated or made sport of, toyed with, even abused or made fool out of. It's a pretty graphic word that is used in a variety of different contexts that the more you understand, <clears throat> for instance, let me just illustrate some of the contexts that we see this word used in and how it's, it's a pretty potent word that God is using here. This is the word that is used in Numbers 22, for instance, where Balaam was upset and he beat and abused his donkey because he was so mad, right? That's the word that's used. Uh, when the Levite's concubine was being raped and abused all night long, Judges chapter 19, this is the word that was used. Uh, when Saul was afraid of being captured by the Philistines, right? Remember, he, he commits suicide. Why? Because he was afraid that if he was captured by the Philistines, he would have been abused. And that's, of course, exactly what would have happened, right? That's what they do to his body afterwards, dismember him and post parts of his body, you know, in various temples to their gods. I mean, it's, the point is, this is a violent word that refers to God uh, bringing down the haughty Egyptians, if you will, and humiliating their pantheon. In other words, God is playing the whole cat and mouse thing. Yeah. Well, we use rot like rot iron, which means you have to physically twist and torture that iron to make it look the way you want it. Oh, interesting. So, I haven't, yeah. I didn't think I about the usage that, of that word. Ah, that is interesting. 
and put that together. Because, yeah, because that's, yeah, you just did. Wow, brilliance, right, just dawned upon us. It just came to me. <laughs> that's good. But that, I mean, it's, it's, a, man, it's a potent word where the whole idea is that God is seen as the absolute sovereign. He's just toying with them, and he's humiliating them. Right? That's the idea. Is that and, and God, notice he doesn't use this word till we get to the eighth plague, right? That God's gonna do this over and over and over again, absolutely humiliating them. But God not only has a purpose for Israel to know and pass on these stories to the generations, but he also has a purpose toward Egypt. Verse three. Moses and Aaron come into Pharaoh and they say unto him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. In other words, uh, it's, it's interesting that God here confronts Pharaoh, particularly with the fact that Pharaoh is, he needs to be humbled. He's still proud, right? In other words, he hits to the core issue of why we have gotten to the eighth plague, right? That it, it's the stubborn pride of Pharaoh that is continuing to resist God. But these words are slightly ironic given the fact that Pharaoh, quote-unquote, repented just last time, right? At the end of chapter 9, at the end of the seventh plague, he had this supposed confession, right? He says, I have sinned. Would you forgive me? You remember that? But it was a very shallow repentance because here God shows up and he says, when are you going to humble yourself, right? Would you stop exalting yourself against me. Uh, in other words, it was a very, it was a facade. It, it was a false repentance, uh, to say the least. But we also see, again, another example of that poetic justice that we see over and over again throughout these plague accounts, that poetic justice is once again at work in verse 3, in that verb, uh, to humble here, that uh, it shows up in this verse where God is calling him, Pharaoh, to humble himself, that word is actually, it first appears back in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, where in that context, it was used to describe how Pharaoh attempted to humble the Hebrews by placing taskmasters over them. And so again, the actions of the, the Egyptians are coming back to haunt them, right? They're trying to humiliate the Hebrews by subjugating them, enslaving them, putting taskmasters over them. But now God is humiliating them. He's calling for them to humble themselves, but if they don't, he says, I'm going to, you know, humiliate you. I'm going to toy with you, right? That's the verb back in verse 2. Yeah? You know, I, I'm going back first, but you're talking about rot, and I was just thinking, I have this old um, anvil that was made in the um, 1850s, and I found out, I did a bunch of research, and they were made out of wrought iron, because they're designed to be pounded, like, repetitively, because they're resilient. So I just wonder if that has, plays into that idea, because he, he has to be so adamant, and he's done so many things that yeah, no, that is so interesting because, <clears throat> I mean, most of the study I did was into the Hebrew root of that, yeah. but the old King James, you know, uses that word rot, right. you know, as in its old English root. Yeah. So I didn't do much study on that English root, but now I'm really curious if wrought iron or, you know, like your anvil was made out of wrought iron. Yeah, from the 1850s. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's probably worth a pretty penny. Yeah. 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 That is so cool. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, now, now i got to go check it out. You know, the word rot, like what's the, the etymology behind that word? Yeah, well, the English use it a lot, that word. Yeah, the, okay. The English is in the English people? Yes. Or, you, or the English language? No, <laughs> you're talking about the English people. Okay, got it. Yeah, because they did a lot of broad iron work, and, and they also used it in the biblical sense of, working something until they submitted, you know? Yeah. 
Oh, that is really interesting. Now, yeah, I gotta check it out. All right, I know we went backwards. No, no, it's okay. Well, there's a lot. There's a long list of those. I've got a list somewhere where it's kind of a cool list of, you know, the yeah, the old like some of the old English root words, you know, because it's changed over time. That's why you know we typically have you know multiple translations that update, etc. The King James itself has a lot like seven or eight different editions because it you know words change over time. But it's fascinating to watch some of those original roots and why they chose that root at that time. Because there's some really specific words that modern English has lost because we don't use those words that way anymore. Or we've, you know, take two or three words and collapse them into one. Right? And it's, so sometimes it's, yeah, that's really interesting. I'll have to check that out. Except that Yeah. Right. No, that's good. That's really good. And that's, I mean, it's just the, this is just a, an illustration of the fun of a word study, right? To watch how it develops over time, look at it in, in you know, the Hebrew or the Greek, and then watch it, you know, even on into, which is helpful, why it can be so helpful to look at modern translations, multiple translations, to see how those words, you know, they're trying to grapple with the core of that idea. That's really good. Grapple, see. I did that, did that on purpose. You're welcome. No, <laughs> I just did that on accident. <laughs> right? <laughs> But notice this, that uh, I mentioned this a moment ago, but this idea of he's calling Pharaoh to humble himself, verse 3, is really getting at the core idea. I mentioned this because, you know, there's a huge theological point here that we really could pause and do the, you know, the rest of our session, right? Here's a sermon within a sermon. But this is, right, the whole idea uh, of how the Bible teaches that everyone must eventually and will whether by voluntary choice or forced submission, either way, humanity will acknowledge the lordship of the one true and living God. And that idea is huge, right? In fact, we, we talked about it much in our Isaiah class, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 45, just a couple of examples. Uh, there's a number of examples, passages I have there on the screen. But the idea is that God is, that's really the ultimate thing he's calling us for, right? Calling us to is to humble ourselves before him. And we, and I, and, I, and I like to say, we can bow now, right, voluntarily, or bow later, be forced to later. Exactly. Either way, right? And, and again, I, Philippians 2 is what we often quote. That's Paul. But Paul is quoting uh, Isaiah 45, if you recall. So if Philippians 2 is quoting Isaiah 45, both of which he's, he's calling upon us to bow the knee, right? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, Right, that's the idea. Is that all will do it. You can do it voluntarily now or be forced to later. Yeah. Would you say that Paul's bowing was somewhere in between on the road to Damascus? A little bit of body slam. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he bowed after the body slam. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. But in a sense, that's kind of what God's doing here with Pharaoh, right? He's like, man, he says, he he's and again, he's doing it. God, that we just read that in verse 1, God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Why? He says, so I can show, I can display, I can unveil all of my mighty signs in front of the world, right? So that the generations to come might know the power of Yahweh. And so Pharaoh is essentially that, right? I mean, God is just setting him up for, uh, for this great fall. God is bringing him down, and he's going to bring him down hard. But that's ultimately what, you know, the purpose is behind the plague, uh, is that God is trying to humble proud Pharaoh, humiliate the pantheon of Egypt, and give Israel something to talk about for generations. 
So he then gets more specific. Verse 4 through 6 is where he gives them the actual threat of the plague, right? He says, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring the locusts into your coast. Uh, Now, again, locusts constituted a particularly nasty problem in ancient Egypt. Uh, On account of the danger, ancient Egyptians worshipped multiple gods who were supposed to be the divine protector against ravages from pests. Uh, There's lots of examples of this. Um, There's, again, Nepet. Uh, the, the question is, once the locusts come, right, where was Nepet, the goddess of the grain? She was supposed to pr- protect the, co- the crops. There was Min, or Min, I think's how you say it, M-I-N, deity of the harvest, Osiris, god of agriculture, Sanahem, or Sanahem, kind of got a, you know, in there to pronounce it right. Uh, but he was the protector of pests. Anubis was the, guardians of the guardian of the fields, right? We could go on and on about the various gods that were supposed to be associated with these various entities. Um, in fact, we, we have uh, uh, the, the Tanis Stella. It's a, uh, we'll talk about some of these various finds, you know, through uh, every once in a while, just the archaeological discoveries from ancient Egypt. But this is from uh, 25th dynasty, it comes later than this account here. But it speaks of, quote, a fine field with the, which the gods protected against the grasshoppers, end quote. Uh, in other words, we have multiple examples of various gods that were prayed to for the purpose of supposedly protecting the fields. But nonetheless, uh, it, you know, God is, of course, Yahweh, is demonstrating his superiority over them. But uh, he says in verse 4, Uh, I'm going to bring the locusts. Verse 5, they will cover the face of the earth that one will not be able to see the earth, right? And then he he just emphasizes the point that he's going to eat the residue. Uh, They will eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remains unto you from the hail. They'll eat every tree which grows for you out of the field. So whatever green thing is left from after the the hail, God says, I'm going to to take the rest of it through the locusts. And they will fill fill your houses, verse 6. Now, we've already seen that with the other, many of the other plagues, right? The frogs and the flies, etc. But he says, they're going to come into your houses. They're going to fill your houses and the houses of all your servants, the houses of all the Egyptians. But then he uses that interesting phrase again, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen. Recall that that phrase, there, there was, remember that, that common Egyptian idiom at the, uh, in the, the day of the 18th dynasty, where the idea was that it was a way to show that they were going to do something awesome, something that's never been seen since the founding of Egypt or something like that. And the idea was that Egypt was viewed as the, the, one of the oldest nations in the world, right? That they were an uh, ancient uh, nation of great antiquity. And as a result of that, they prided themselves in that and so this idea that even Egypt has never seen something this bad. Well, here he, he says that your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen this. Now, some scholars point this out that verse 6 seems to contrast verse 2. In other words, in verse 2, notice, God says, I'm going to do this that your son and your son's sons may know what I did in Egypt. Well, now he says, I'm going to do something that neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen. In other words, what we see in those contrasting statements is that Egypt is being pointed to her past, to the time of her great glory. Her glory days were behind her. Uh, But that celebrity and splendor are about to end. Israel, on the other hand, is being instructed about her future, about deliverance that is coming ahead of her, uh, and about the promised land that they'll go and enjoy. In other words, Egypt's glory days are about to uh, wane, if you will, 
Uh, it's fading, but Israel's glory days are ahead of them. God's bringing glory and deliverance to Israel. But then what happens next, verse 7, it says, or I'm sorry, in verse 6, it says, And he, speaking of Moses, turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. Now, again, this is, uh, if you know much about your ancient Near Eastern you know, court protocol, this was pretty unprecedented. You don't do this exactly, right? I mean, you need to be invited into the presence of a monarch. You need to be dismissed from the presence of a monarch. So for Moses to turn on his heel, if you will, show his back to Pharaoh and walk out was a, a gross breaking of protocol, but it's kind of the point, right? Because when, when, the, when the message was just delivered, in other words, do you remember, I, I warned you about this several weeks back, to watch this dynamic between Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, and how these, you know, the interplay, we're seeing, you know, major increase in the friction, if you will, between these two characters, three characters. But, the, you know, we have Moses and Aaron on the one hand, we have Pharaoh and his servants, who are going to come up in the next verse, on the other hand. And we see this, you know, early on, there was kind of more of the, okay, we're going to go through the court protocol thing, right? We're going to kind of be, you know, do our thing, be respectful, whatever. But then we see this very clear tension being built where Pharaoh is going to break protocol in, in some of the things that he says and does to Moses and Aaron. We'll see some of that, you know, in, in this text. But then so too, Moses and Aaron are... are treating Pharaoh and viewing themselves more and more as equals rather than, you know, culturally expected, they would be treated as inferiors, right? Because Pharaoh is the great monarch. Right? That's the idea. But here, he's, it's like they're treating him as, uh, you know, the, the arrogant monarch that he is that's about to be brought down, right? They just said, God's going to humiliate you. And then they turn and, and in a sense, humiliate Pharaoh in that sense by breaking uh, court protocol. But nonetheless, this is followed up immediately in verse 7 with this, what I call dramatic irony. It says, Pharaoh's servants say unto him, how long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Don't you know that Egypt's about destroyed, right? That's the, they're, in other words, as Moses and Aaron depart from Pharaoh's presence, Pharaoh's servants make an ironic statement and therefore a suggestion. They're basically saying, okay, let's wheel and deal with them, right? Because Egypt has fallen apart. We've got to get rid of these guys. So let at least the men go, which, of course, Moses and Aaron say, nope, that's, that's a no-go. Right? It's all of us or none of us. But nonetheless, the Pharaoh's servants decide that it's time to try and break a deal yet again. But it's interesting that it, what they do at the end or the beginning of verse 7 is they say, they ask that rhetorical question, how long shall this man be a snare unto us? In other words, verse 7 makes an interesting observation. In the midst of suffering, the Egyptians were blaming Moses and Israel. In particular, they're using the word snare, which is a bit of an ironic word choice. That the Egyptian officials are saying with the snare metaphor was that Moses had become a means by which the Egyptians were denied their freedom and trapped in a situation they didn't want to be in. Right? That's a very interesting word choice. The irony, however, is very apparent. It's very obvious. Those who had enslaved the Israelites, keeping them trapped and denying them their freedom, were now, quote-unquote, getting a taste of their own medicine. They were themselves being held against their wills by their opponent, right? That's the idea. In other words, the tables have turned. They feel trapped, which is incredibly ironic when they're talking about the slaves uh, of the Hebrew people. But nonetheless, 
there's a, there's a further irony that is present in verse 7 when they tell Pharaoh or they ask him the question, knowest thou not uh, yet that Egypt is destroyed? In other words, haven't you caught up to speed yet? Don't you realize, right, that, that Egypt's fallen apart? Now, don't forget, that is one of the key words throughout the Exodus narrative. Remember that? The word know, K-N-O-W. The idea is God wants to reveal himself so that he is known. Remember that? And the point is, he has God made himself known? Well, yeah, apparently, at least the uh, servants of Pharaoh realize it. They know something, but they're starting to wonder if Pharaoh is catching on, right? Do you not realize how bad it is? Yeah. I was thinking maybe the servants, um, you know, they're, they're full of pride or, you know, whatever for their culture, but at least for the text, only, only Pharaoh has a hardened heart which is kind of like a, you know, another version of blinders, if you will. It's almost just reaffirming just how much of the obvious isn't obvious to him because of that hardened heart. Yep, that's right. So kind of, because even when you're you're sort of uh, servants, you you know, they drank the Kool-Aid, but now it's starting to wear off. Yeah, the servants drink the Kool-Aid, but it's starting to wear off, right? And you're exactly right. The plagues are starting to have the right effect, right? What God said would be the effect. It's working on the servants. But they're starting to get pretty concerned about Pharaoh. And they're like, Pharaoh, do you realize how bad it's getting? Which also, you know, yes? Wouldn't Pharaoh still be living in the lap of luxury? Okay, excellent. That's what I, exactly what I was going to say. Is Because is, I think you're exactly right. Is... It makes you wonder how much Pharaoh himself was was actually experiencing the desolation in the land, right? Exactly, exactly. In other words, he's still you know living in the lap of luxury, and but the common people are suffering. They're the ones that lost all the cattle. They're the ones that whose fields are devastated. They're the ones if the locusts come in and eat every green thing that's left, they got nothing to feed their kids, right? But Pharaoh's still living high on the hog, if you will. Yeah. It's like politicians who claim to be one with the people and they don't know the price of bread or gallon of gas. Preach it. Preach it, my friend. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of amens going on there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, man. good. That's really good. You got a follow-up to that? Yeah, I was just kind of thinking maybe follow-up. And they, I think they could also see, because earlier when uh, the Pharaoh was saying something like, you know, he, he, I sinned or something, and then, you know, he kind of vacillated, so they probably were losing uh, credibility or respect for him. They were like, this kid's screwing up. He's all over the map. He's not consistent. He doesn't believe yep. what we've all been, you know, that's right. That's right. So it's just sort of a, I don't know, momentum change for sure. Absolutely. No, that's good. Let's camp on that for a few minutes, all right? And, and just try and develop this thought for a bit. But think about, you know, again, like I said, it's, it's helpful to consider the, the plague narratives from all the perspectives, right? Think of it from the perspective of Moses and Aaron, from Pharaoh, from the common, you know, the common Egyptian, and everybody in between, you know, try and just imagine yourself as witnessing the plagues from these various angles. But here, Pharaoh's servants, 
you're seeing first, you know, they're caving a little bit. They're saying, wait a minute, maybe Pharaoh is vacillating. He's not quite, you know, uh, yeah, concrete. He's not the bold leader, the God that we thought he was. Yeah, exactly. But then the point is well made that they're, they're blame shifting. Man, are we, aren't we really good at this? Where, you know what I'm saying? Like they don't see their own culpability in this situation. When, and now they're, they're getting ready to, you know, they, they just turn over to Moses and Aaron and say, well, it's their fault that we're going through such a hard time. You know, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. But this is where the human mind and heart is in so many ways at its most ingenious point. When we invent ways to deny personal culpability. You know what I'm saying? We come up with all these reasons why, well, it was their fault. It was circumstances. It was whatever, rather than owning up to our place in the process. Yeah, yeah you got that? That's right. It wasn't me. That's right. We're to model this. This is the narrative for our household. I, I get it. Right. I hear that all the time. It wasn't me. Yes, it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here, Bob, and then Diana, and then we'll come over. I was just thinking it's, it's sort of a, a parallel between, like, at the end of the first time of seventeen, when at the very end, King Saul asked his assistant after David had proclaimed, you know, who he was for, after he had done everything, you know, in the name of God, and succeeded. The very end of the story, after witnessing all this. King Saul still asking assistant, like, what, what's his family? What, how is it? Must be what's his, you know, what's his background? Because they're trying to attribute all that happened to the the wrong reason. You know, they're still trying to believe something else about maybe it's his DNA or I don't think they knew about DNA then, but you know what I mean? Yeah, or right. Heritage or where did he come from? Sure. You know, they want to investigate that rather than what was right right in front of them, just like Pharaoh. That's good. That's right good. And he's not seeing it, right? Not seeing it, yeah. Ah, oh, that's good, because uh, that's really good. Dana, what were you going to say? Well, I was just thinking how do we evangelize our politicians to the same concept, saying it's their fault that our nation is the way it is, but what's our part of culpability mm-hmm. in having those politicians in the office? Or we right. can just sit back and think, well, it's God just doing it all. <laughs> They're not doing these things. Sure. So anyway, I don't know if No, absolutely. Well, it brings us back. It brings it down to earth, back to home, if you will. He's like, because we, we do. We need to understand where is our cul- personal culpability in this, right? I mean, we do. We look around, whether it's Egypt, and they say, Pharaoh, you got to stop, right? Or, but did they not remember that this was the popular policy to enslave the Hebrew nation, right? The whole nation, quote unquote, you know, not that they voted, but had they voted, they'd have voted to enslave the Hebrews. Right? So it's like, they're just as much at fault. That was a popular opinion. And so, but look at our day. Right? Look at how much problems we have, but look at how we got there. And what, play, you know, what part did we play in that? Yeah, we were complacent. That's right. We got Mormon crickets, right? Yeah. <laughs> Can anyone say you ever seen the eighth plague, right? I mean, has everyone seen a, a Mormon cricket plague? I think this one for me is the easiest to visualize, right? Because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it. <laughs> Crawls over the ground, right? Uh, Elisa and then Simone. So it just reminds me of when in the 
press secretaries that said that they're the only reason people were having such a problem with the gas prices was because they should have already gotten their Tesla. And I was like, hey, you're kind of removed from the situation, aren't you? Yeah. Yes. Right. So, you know, it reminds me of that. Yes. Just kind of like, look, I don't get the problem. The boils are gone. Right. You know, I'm fine. Yeah. So, Ouch. Yeah, right. Here's your next glass of Kool-Aid. <laughs> drink, drink deeply. Right. <laughs> Simone. We had an infestation of crickets one year when I was a kid in Fallon. Oh, yeah. And they swept through and they covered the ground solid. You could not see the ground. Yep. And they covered all the walls of the house. And they were oh. sweeping under the door. Just solid crickets. Black crickets. Oh. And How long did that last? It was the funniest thing because they came in that day. And they were there all day and all night. And the next morning we got up and there wasn't a one left. Really? They were all gone. They just kept going? Yep. Whoa. Of course, they did a lot of damage in the meantime. Oh, yeah. And you couldn't even walk because you, you'd step on them, you know? So they did you... What's that? They eat their own. They eat their own. Well, that's a pleasant thought. That's why when you drive over them and then they go to get what you drove over, then you get to drive over them again. <laughs> <laughs> and there's layers <laughs> of just nastiness. <laughs> wow. So yeah, did you did you sleep that night? I mean, were they? They were everywhere. Stuffing towels in the windows, trying to keep them out. Wow. There's a antique house that was brought up from Midas ghost town. Oh wow. And so you know the windows were rather. Loose, <laughs> <laughs> to and say the least. And the sandstorms all blew under the door, so we'd have to stuff sand and just under the door. Yeah. So this is. We didn't sleep. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine not. And wow. Those were just plain crickets. Those weren't Mormon crickets. They right. Smell, they smell weird too. Like we had a bunch going up to Boise this summer. We pulled in, and I got out of the car at the gas station. They kind of smelled like the harbor. Really. So, yeah. But, Really? Whoa. Like just like a little bit like the harbor or something. Yeah. Where's the car? Yeah. Yeah, like fishy. A little yeah, just oh, isn't that pleasant? Well, but honestly, I mean this is this is one of those things that's helpful for us to visualize because this is one of the plagues that we're like, wait a minute, like I can relate a little bit, right? And you start thinking about you know, I mean, because we just, we read the text and, and we, we try to, but it's helpful to try and put yourself there and think about the sights and the smells and the sounds and, you know, the sleepless nights and the torture that this would have been, let alone the danger in losing the crop, right? Now you're like, whoa, wait a minute, what are we going to do now? I was also thinking, I've never thought about the Egyptians trying to kill the crickets. Locusts. Locusts, right? Yeah, Yeah. well, it makes you wonder, because I think, you know, as far as I've found in the literature, there's not, because remember, like, frogs were considered sacred, haket, right? It was like the sign of haket, so they couldn't kill the frogs, right? But the locusts were pests, and the gods were protecting against them, supposedly, supposed to, right? But, um, so, I'd imagine they were probably trying to kill them all, right? And it's like, but... That's right. In fact, I mean, we got just a minute. Um, I wasn't going to go there for sake of time, but 
we're only going to make it halfway through this anyways, so we'll just worry about that later. Go to the book of Joel real quick. It's one of those uh, Old Testament sections that you never find, you know, you're hardly ever there. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. So Joel, if you don't recall, Joel, the reason I, I just want to take you here since we're elaborating on it, we've only got a few minutes left and then we'll, uh, you know, we'll wrap it up for tonight. But in Joel uh, chapter two, we have a description of a locust plague. And it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, in other words, uh, boy, there's so much to talk about. The first I mean, the, the whole point of the book of Joel is that God was sending this as a, as a plague upon the people, and he is uh, judging the people. And this locust plague is, again, rather ironic in that this was a plague targeting the children of Israel, right? Now, this is a later point in history, but nonetheless, when you start thinking about that, you know, it's like they're on the receiving end of the plague rather than in the Exodus account they're exempt from the plague, right? They're watching the Egyptians get hammered, but Israel is exempt. Well, now they're being judged uh, by the locust plague. Well, let's just read a few verses, chapter 2. It says, Blow you the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the, the land tremble for the day the Lord comes, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong there has not been uh, ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them is a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap like the noise of a flame of fire that devours the stubble, right? And you think about the buzzing wings, uh, et cetera, just that noise of the fire, the crackling, right? Uh, all the various uh, sounds, sights. He says it devours the stubble, verse, end of verse five, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness, or that's an old word for me in uh, Gather blackness is, in other words, draining color, growing pale, is, is actually what it's talking about there. It says, they shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war, right? So there's Simone's description. They're just climbing the wall everywhere. He says, they shall march everyone on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks, right? Proverbs talks about that, right? They have no captain, overseer, or lord, but they don't break ranks. It's like there's one after the other in their row, Neither shall one thrust another, verse 8. They shall uh, walk everyone in his path. And when they uh, fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. In other words, you can take your best whack at them, but there's just more coming, right? I mean, you're not going to stop them. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter into the windows like a thief. So there's back to Simone's comment, <laughs> right? You're stuffing towels in the windows. Sorry, you're not going to sleep tonight, right? Yeah, she's itching everywhere. I just, I'm sorry, Simone. Uh, verse 10 says, The earth shall quake before them, and the heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. So that's the idea is they're taking flight, and they're, they're just blotting out the sun. 
uh, you know, with, with their hordes. And the stars shall, shall withdraw their shining. And it says, the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. Again, the Lord is the one that's directing this. It's like he's the one out in front calling them, you know, to order, marching them along. He says, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very ter terrible. Who can abide it? And of course, what he does next is he calls them to repentance, etc. But those first 11 verses is a pretty graphic description, right, of what a locust plague would have looked like to endure. Yes. Okay. Yep. And from chapter 1. Uh, and there's several places. But yeah, verse 25, the canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, the great army that I sent among you. Exactly. Chapter 2, verse 25. <clears throat> exactly. So this, this idea of, you know, again, wow, the, the locust plague that's coming. And yet God is, is he's forewarning them. And yet they, what do they do? They deny personal culpability. They say, well, it's not our fault, it's their fault, right? Then they're going to wheel and deal and try to say, well, how about you go, just the men, but leave everything else behind? And Moses says, nope, not happening, right? You got a thought? Oh, no, sorry. Oh, I, I was just wondering, you were um, talking about all the different people and what they were thinking, and I'm wondering, what were the Hebrews thinking? Mm -hmm. You know, as they're watching this happen, you know, I would align myself with Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What were you thinking? Keep the door shut. Yeah. Right. <laughs> a lot of them didn't incur the, the plagues, so they're probably thinking like, "Pharaoh guy, you're not too smart, is you?" Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder what what were they? I mean, I would probably be thinking relief, right? That we're not going through that. Close the door in case they come. Right. Thinking, man, Pharaoh is a little little dense. Right. Well, well, are you taking what? those opportunities to point to God? If, if you know, if you are still a Hebrew that believes in God, are you taking that opportunity to point yeah. to God to the servants that are, or the people who are maybe in your house or right. around you, or that you have, that you are working in their house or whatever right. the situation there? In other words, turn it into evangelism. I, I, I yep. I'm trying to be self-righteous, so I'm just wondering. Like, no, it's good. Like, Right? What do you, what, how are you responding? Right. And then if you, you know, just like we say, we see that kind of crossover into today, right? So then how are we responding today as we see the hand of God in different situations? No, that's good. That's good. What were you going to say? No more money. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> God just hit Egypt. Oh, man. Those poor people, let's send them money and all our... All of our dreams. Yeah, respond with humanitarian aid. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. What were you going to say? That's right. That's right. That's good. And remember, that's one of the purposes of the, of the plagues, right? That you might know, God says, whether he's speaking, he says that you to the, both Israel and the Egyptians is that you might know that I am the Lord. And, and I think it's profound, but, you know, like, I, I mean, I think of verse 2 of the text, right, where it's like maybe a, a Hebrew family is gathering at the door, and they're saying, okay, watch, kids, look at this. 
right? <laughs> and they're because they're like, you you look hard at this because look at what Yahweh can do and look at what, in other words, that was what God commanded. He says, I'm doing this so that you would tell your sons and tell your son's sons what I am doing to Egypt. So it's like maybe they're walking outside saying, all right, kids, take a hard, long look at this. Yeah. So that makes me think right away, right? Those kids, like you said, those kids are actually going to be the faithful kids that actually go and yeah. take the land. Yeah, that's good. In Joshua. And so it's funny because those kids can always turn back and go, well, I was watching, but you weren't. Yeah, you weren't watching. <laughs> Amen. No, that's exactly right. In fact, and that's another whole angle that I, to- I typically don't think about till I get to the book of Numbers, right? And like the, the, the wandering in the wilderness and then the wiping out of that first generation. And, but I, I try to, but, but I like that idea, transport it back to the Exodus and just think through the Exodus events from the perspective of a young Hebrew child that's witnessing this. Because you're the one that's going to make it into the promised land. Your parents aren't. You got that? Well, I wasn't ready. Oh, you were scratching. I'm telling you, it's like an auction in here, man. I'm, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sold. No, <laughs> no, it's good. That's right. Yeah, and it makes you wonder. Right there. Yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about February. Yep. Because it gave us that, for instance, and let me look up the verse, but it's back in Exodus 9, uh, verse 31. It says, The flax and the barley were smitten, for the barley was in the ear. And so that gives us the February slash March timeline. Yep. So it's cooler, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's different over there. I mean, it is cooler than the heat of summer, but it's, it's still, I mean, their cool is still hot to us, but, you know, it's not like our cold right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But nonetheless. No, in the desert, it is, this time of year is very cold. Sure. I mean, it's not like snow on the ground, but. You mean at night? Yeah, they can have cool, cool nights. Yeah, exactly. But it's still, yeah. I mean, you still have the Mediterranean, you know, temperate, you know, zone, if you will. So close. Yeah, we're within a month. Yeah, in this. So when we'll we'll see it because I mean we're we're not going to finish it tonight, but we'll come back and finish the eighth plague, uh, and then we've got the ninth plague, the end of chapter ten. Then chapter 11 is them announcing the 10th plague. The whole chapter is the announcement that the 10th plague is coming. And then chapter 12 is the actual events of Passover, where God starts instituting, okay, this is what's going to happen. You know, here's your, your ceremonies, etc., to acknowledge. And then the exodus itself, that is the exit out of Egypt, happens in chapter 12. All right, so that's the, I mean, we're, we're closing on this. Uh, and, but that's that Passover season. You know, there we are in... April, you know, ish. So, all right. Any other thoughts? We're out of time. We're out of time for tonight. So we made it, you know, we made it through the prelude. We didn't even get to the locust yet in verse 12, but that's okay.
Yes. Um, yes. I was just going to look at my calendar, but we're meeting next Wednesday. Yeah. Upstairs, now? Yeah. Ah. Say it again. Like around five, so that you know, guys could get swimsuit, come down here and do their stuff. We'll put it up there so that the teens aren't coming through here to get stuff for you guys. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Okay. And no one knows oh. the church because we can't make that much food. Just yeah, just <laughs> yeah. If anybody here wants to help and come early, that'd be great. So bring soups and chili yeah, soup, and chili, bread, cookies, whatever. Ah, uh, fun. Okay. I'm good with it. Next Wednesday, yeah. So you'll have a hot cup of chili. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, let's close it down for tonight then. And then uh, we'll close in a word of prayer and we'll call it a night. Father, thank you again for this time. Lord, thank you for, Lord, just this, this picture that we get here in the book of Exodus of the uh, the the eighth plague and what that entailed, Lord, as we just contemplate what it would have, what, what they would have gone through when it comes to the plague itself, the locusts. Uh, but Lord, the the prelude leading up to it, your warning of the proud, arrogant heart of Pharaoh, the, his Lord, the necessity of him humbling himself before you, how that is also what we need to do. That, Lord, we are so much like the servants of Pharaoh that want to deny culpability. We want to blame everybody else but our own uh, self and, and our fault in the matter. And Lord, that's just overwhelming when we think of uh, how frequent that is in our own heart and how, Lord, we all stand in desperate need of your grace. That, Lord, you would help us to recognize our neediness, to turn to you for your mercy and your grace. Lord, we ask that you would help us to contemplate, Lord, as we mentioned tonight, how we, in the midst of such suffering and turmoil, that we would function as pointing out to the next generation, pointing out to those within our sphere of influence, evangelizing them so that they might see their need for Christ. Lord, we ask that you would keep us fervent, Lord, in our prayers, aware, Lord, of the needs around us, eager to to help where we can, but Lord, faithful uh, when it comes to declaring your truth to a lost and dying world. So Lord, we, we pray for your help and we pray for your working and we commit ourselves to you afresh. In Christ's name, amen. amen.